Welcome to 801 Critical Conversations Beyond Backstage. Tonight in the pod bar, we have John, Jen, and me, Herman. If you remember from our previous episode's last call, we welcomed me, Herman. As a reminder, everything that you hear on these podcasts strictly reflect our opinions only, no one else's. So for today's prompt, I'd like for us to discuss how to have a difficult conversation. So Herman, when you uh, pitched the topic as how to have difficult conversations, the first thing that came to my mind was asking for a raise, right? Like that might be difficult for me to do, but I don't think that's what you're talking about, is it? No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Uh, so yeah, so let me be a little clearer by typical uh, by difficult conversation. Uh, I'm talking about those uh, those critical conversations, you know, uh, one of the main reasons we, we, this pod bar came to be here. Uh, I'm talking about those conversations that hopefully lots of organizations have already had and continue to have, um, especially as we begin to consider a reboot to our industry. Uh, I'm talking about the conversations of uh, racism, or more specifically, anti-racism, um, sexism, uh, ageism, all the isms, uh, misogyny, um, all those conversations that people kind of tiptoe around or talk in code about or just ignore altogether. Um, those are the conversations. So let me come out and say, you know, I'm a middle-aged cisgendered white man and uh, I'm part of the larger grouping of people that have perpetuated a lot of the nastiness in our industry and and in the world in general. So for me, uh, I think it's important that we come right out and say that we're not experts. We know what has worked for us in our organizations and and what hasn't. And, And we want to start having these discussions. We welcome feedback from the community and the listeners, and, and we want to know how we can make ourselves better and how we can make our listeners better and, and what resources there are to share. Um, so I think that's really important to get out there right off the bat. Uh, yeah, so so where, where do we even start with this, um, with this? critical conversation. So, uh, you know, in the past year, two years, there's been a fair amount of demands. There's been a fair amount of letters written to organizations. There's the We See You White American Theater uh, list of demands out there on the internet. Um, So how do organizations, especially PWI or predominantly white institutions, how, how, do, how do we as middle management, people with some say, not the most say, how, how, do we, how do we facilitate? What should we do beyond being good listeners and, and, and good people? Mm-hmm. I, think, I think before we go on with our responses uh, to, to better communicate to our audience, and to have them give them some context uh, on 
who's speaking here. Uh, I think we should do a quick uh, round robin here of, of identifiers. So uh, to remind everyone, myself, Herman speaking here, uh, I uh, pronouns are he, him, uh, cisgender, straight, uh, male, Latin. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm a, a minority voice in the room here. Thanks, Herman. Um, Jen, I am a white, cisgendered, straight female. Um, my pronouns are she, her. I think that is about all the pertinent identifiers for this, this portion of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'm John, as I said before, a cisgendered white man. I'm, I'm straight, he, him, his. Yeah, cool. Thank you, John um, and Jen. Uh, so, I, so going back to your question, like, as far as how we facilitate these conversations, um, uh, I think that's a whole reason why uh, I wanted us to have this discussion and and see and, and get the different perspectives out there because um, so often as a minority, I gotta say, like gut reaction when if an organization calls me to a room and say, hey, we're going to talk about uh, racism and just our new policy and how not good that is or, uh, or, or, or any difficult conversation like that, um, as a minority, my gut reaction is to just kind of like roll my eyes and quickly dismiss it. Uh, I, I definitely am not giving the organization or the speaker the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I'm, I'm walking in with a glass half empty approach, if, if I'm being completely sincere here. Um, however, I have seen, uh, uh, been told of, witnessed scenarios in which the organization or the and the individual speaking on behalf of the organization is doing their damn best. Uh, and sometimes they just don't get it, right? But, or sometimes they do get it, you know? Uh, there, there's, there's a conscious competence or an unconscious competence going on. Uh, meaning they get it and they know it's gonna be long work and it's out there, it's, it's gonna be for the long haul that they're doing this uh, versus they, they get it, uh, but don't realize the amount of work that's ahead of them. Um, so th that's the good scenarios. But of course, there's also conscious and unconscious incompetence. Um, that's, and that's a little more difficult to overcome. And that's where I begin to just kind of have internal conversations with myself of like, I knew this was going to be bad. Can't wait for this to be over or look how ridiculous they're sounding. Etc. I think Herman, as you were talking, one of the things I sort of focused on was the the differences you're drawing in organizations, right, and the possible approaches or, or even just awareness, and all of those levels of awareness could be in one organization, right? And so I know one of the 
issues I have in facilitating any, any conversation. And I am not, I have techniques to facilitate conversations, but it doesn't necessarily mean I know more than the people in the room about the topic that we're discussing. It just means I have techniques to facilitate a conversation. Um, but it's like balancing all the, how the, how everyone in the conversation comes into the room. Um, and, and clearly not everyone is in the same level of awareness or even desire to be aware. Um, and, and as you said, these are conversations that, and work that is not momentary. It's not even many moments. It's not even one year, right? It is year after year after year and active work that has to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, set, setting, setting that environment that you just talked about, like as people walk into the room is, is extremely important. Um, make, making everyone feel welcomed, uh, regardless of what their identifiers are. A catch there is uh, a, a huge obstacle is, you know, like what what makes that room welcoming? And one of the first things that comes to mind is you need to have trust. You need to have trust in the person speaking to you and the organization that they represent. Um, I definitely agree with what you said that an organization can have a whole bunch of different perspectives. Like it can all exist in one roof. Cause yeah, an organization is made up of a bunch of different individuals uh, that have approached a different way. But whoever is, is deemed that person that's going to talk which tends to be the, the artistic director, the CEO, the, the the top tier person, which in turn also tends to be the white cisgender male, um, it it's their duty, it's their responsibility, I believe, to create that trust. And what what makes it a catch is that if you're just starting to create that trust at that meeting in that room, you've lost the room already. I need to enter the room already having trusted you, right? So that that rapport, that relationship needs to have been established. And sometimes it's not. Uh, well, and only, it, not only is it not established, in a lot of cases, it's been destroyed already, right? The, right. the mistrust right. through certain actions or structures has already been been prevalent for certain people in that room and only certain people in that room. The box being checked is actually one of the things that I, I fear a lot of organizations are doing, right? Um, you know, last summer after the, the George Floyd killing, everyone came out with their condemnation and, and their support of anti-racism. And now you, you see that in social media. And, and I need question, like, is that legitimate? Is that checking off your box, right? Um, and one of the things that in my current organization, I have really appreciated is there's an acknowledgement that understanding racism 
um, which is which is the topic we are specifically dealing with in my organization. Yes, there are there are other issues there too, but we are specifically dealing with racism. Um, there's an acknowledgement that from leadership that that it's an inside job. It's not just a structural problem. It's also a structural problem within institutions, right? Um, but in order to undo the structures authentically, you have to do the inside work first. Um, so I know one of the successful approaches that has been taken at my institution is, is to ask people to educate themselves. Now, we're all a group of educators, right? So resources have been provided. There's book groups, things like that, um, where people are reading uh, texts like White Fragility, right? Um, and, and literally trying to educate themselves. Now, how you receive that information, of course, is dependent on who you are, how open you are to the topic, et cetera, et cetera. But it's at least establishing sort of like a baseline for the information that we are going to talk about in different meetings, trainings, et cetera, so that we can try to move forward as an organization. Um, and I think that's one of the things for me that, that is helpful in all critical conversations is that we all understand the definition of what we're talking about. Some people may not buy into the definition, but if the definition of the terms is not understood by the room, then people aren't even, they're just not even sure what we're talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I also just want to acknowledge that I'm saying like, we need to define racism before we talk about racism, right? Well, white people do need to define racism. That, that may like drive anyone who's non-white crazy, but white people do need to define racism. Mm -hmm. And, and when, when you ask a question, if you're, if you're up there uh, behind your lectern and speaking to a room, asking a question, you know, I guess playing off what you were just talking about, you know, what, what is racism? Um, or, or I guess what I'm getting at, when you show a sense of vulnerability, it's, it's not a weakness as people so often look at it. It's actually a welcoming sign to see that um, uh, as a minority, I will say when I, when I see somebody be vulnerable, especially if it's a white male that's, that is in a way repenting and coming around and realize the wrongs that have occurred and realized his white privilege, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a welcoming sign. It's a step in the right direction. It's a baby step but still a step in the right direction. And uh, so it, it's, it, it's getting over that, that stigma of, oh, oh, I can't be weak. You know, I, I can't let others inform me. I, I, I hold a, a position of power, therefore I must know all. Right? I can't have my staff be teaching me, I need to teach my staff. Um, so, so there's that, and, and and often even outside of our industry, I remember I believe it was uh, a Democratic senator from Oklahoma, 
I want to say. Uh, and in Congress, he got up and he spoke about calling it, he called himself racist and he acknowledged his white privilege and he, he quickly recapped his political career and how he got to that point and even before he was in politics and and you know I'm not from Oklahoma I don't live there but he he certainly won me over in that moment uh you know I, I don't really know much more about the man besides that moment but that moment made me want to learn more about him uh and made me want to have that conversation um, I also know that even from, even within the minority group, there's, there's almost kind of like two schools of thoughts there. Uh, there, there's a school of thought of, it's not my job. It's not our job as minorities to inform the white folk on how to have a racist conversation or an anti-racist conversation. Um, and, and here we are kind of focusing on racism, but I can expand it on, it's not our job to educate you on how to have a critical conversation, uh, regardless of what that topic is. Like you, you need to go forth as, as, as your organization, Jen said, and you need to go forth and educate yourself. And once you've done that, then circle back to me and we'll have a conversation then. There's another uh, school of thought within the minority groups that says the whites haven't gotten it right before. What is going to lead us to believe that they're going to have it right this time around? Right. Therefore, that helping hand needs to be extended. Right? Show us that moment of vulnerability. Show us that willingness to learn. And we'll jump in and assist you on this journey, right? You know, everybody's going to just argue their point as to why their their point is right or wrong, and I think that's irrelevant at the moment for our sake. Uh, it's more of what 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 gets us to that common goal. What what allows us to, have, regardless of what your topic is. How do you bring forth the conversation? How do you carry it through? Uh, how do you make everybody in the room feel welcomed, feel heard, uh, uh, feel like you have their back, um, regardless of what that topic is? I, I, I don't want to naysay. <laughs> But I'm not sure it's possible to make everybody comfortable and feel like they're heard and feel like they can speak. Um, but that doesn't mean that that shouldn't be attempted, right? Um, but I, everybody, you know, approaches things so differently and has such different awareness of, of topics, but also of themselves and their own authenticity or lack of authenticity or you know, relationship difficulties that enter the room as well. But I don't know that we, uh, that any facilitator can actually make that occur. Um, no, and and I, it should also be said, discomfort is allowed. Discomfort is welcomed, right? 
what cannot be allowed is because of your discomfort, you become dismissive or defensive uh, or, or you, you retract from any kind of progress, right? Discomfort is actually good and it's okay. Uh, and, and I agree that the whole room's not gonna feel comfortable. Um, it's, it's, it's what branches off that discomfort that that's where the red flags come into play. That's what can't be allowed, right? Um, you know, again, let's kind of stray away a little from racism and and talk about we're, we're in a moment in our life in which these conversations are happening a lot, right? And, and, and hopefully they continue to happen, right? But that wasn't as common of a thing pre-pandemic. Um, but I think of the conversation that was common was it, it was a fairly regular thing in most organizations to have some kind of sexual harassment training, uh, some kind of sexual harassment handbook that somebody had to read, a, a form that you had to sign, a, a class that you had to take, um, a specialist would come in and speak about it or your HR representative. That topic was common. That's a critical conversation. You know, it's 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 viewed maybe as a little less critical because it's a little more in our system. It's a little more ingrained within us. So it's a little more commonplace, which we like these other topics to be a little more commonplace. Um, but even then, that topic has similar obstacles, right? How do how do you make everyone feel welcomed in the room? How do they trust you? How do you, especially a sexual harassment class, you know, it's females are the victims in, in a lot of these scenarios that get laid out. You know, uh, the examples that they always tend to give is like, um, there's a guy that, hey, class, is this sexual harassment? This guy comes up to this girl and smacks her butt. Is that good or bad? You know, um, whatever example it tends to be, the female is the victim. You know, how do you make the females in the room feel welcome? This is definitely not your point at all. But even as you're giving the this example, I'm thinking to myself, this example, this training is the reason sexual harassment still is so ingrained, <laughs> right? Like, so... <laughs> Right, right. I think that only makes this conversation we're having actually more important is like, let's not do to racism what we did to sexual harassment, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like let's in, in, in earnest try in our organizations to actually have authentic conversations that result in learning that then result in change. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Because I'm sure we, we can all relate to this of, I think back to all the jokes that immediately follow after the class, right? right. Like once, once everybody breaks off, right? All of a sudden you're in a conversation and, you know, especially a very guy conversation, like, oh, that's, that was sexual harassment. Oh, we learned that in class. Don't do that. Ha ha ha. Right. And that, that, that happens, you know? Um, it, it, it could also, you know, a, a start could also just be in your own social circles, right? Outside of work. Um, I know that 
and, and probably with your parents as well, certainly with my parents, like our parents' generation, like we were raised that you don't talk about the three things, politics, religion, and money. Right? You, just, you just don't talk about that when you're out and about with friends and stuff. Uh, because people get sensitive about it. People, there's that discomfort again, right? You don't want to be the one that causes somebody else that discomfort. But again, discomfort's okay. It's how that person reacts that then becomes a problem, right? And, and essentially that's why the parents are telling you don't, don't bring it up because you could find yourself in an argument, right? Oh, it's somebody else is bad for getting mad for something that I said, right? Right. Uh, but I guess the more we argue, the more we get used to our perspectives and then we're, we just accept it, theoretically, right? Like that's, that's like a hard way to learn, but if I know your political views and you know my political views, right? You're Republican, I'm Democrat or vice versa, then great. We, we are accepting of our views. Now we won't talk about it, but at least we already know where we stand right so we through many arguments we had that conversation and again like what whether it's vaccines sexual harassment politics or racism how do you have that conversation right? whether you're talking to a friend a co-worker or a room full of people how do you have that conversation? I, I find myself listening. You know, um, I definitely, even, even in this episode of the podcast, like uh, I have less to say and more to learn. And I think it is incumbent upon us to be actively listening, not just listening, but actively listening. Is there a moment we're going to reach in this industry where we all know the places that have done the work and the places that haven't. It, it could very well be possible. I mean, there's, there's websites out there of, uh, for example, I think about the, the no more 10 out of 12s mm -hmm. a, a website was created and you can see what theaters have signed on to no more uh, 10 out of 12s. Um, uh, the various letters that are out there that uh, the design production letter you can see the authors, uh, sorry. So you can see the designers that advocate it. Um, there's other letters that have also authors that have been published. So in, in a way, yeah, you're, 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 you're seeing it now and there's nothing to kind of hold anyone back to potentially pull all this information together into one big database, you know? Uh, it's, 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 it would be very interesting if it does get created, uh, if somebody could kind of quickly refer to that. No different than like a certification, you know, a, a rigging certification. Just mm -hmm. like you look up if somebody's certified, you look up if a theater is has whatever we call that that certification, a, a humane certification. Uh, that yeah, that's an interesting thought. I will say that as, as a white guy in a white organization, uh, it, uh, the resources 
can be difficult to find. And, and, if, and if we had the ability to bring in facilitators and have those, not just the conversations, but the, the help with finding the right uh, resources. Um, I, I think that's valuable and, and specifically catered to entertainment, right? Like they exist in, in we have an EDI office and, and we've had, you know, training and whatever from the EDI office and it's, it's boilerplate like the sexual harassment training. And, and, and it's, it's difficult when we're talking about an industry that often deals so personally with people, especially in costumes, right? And especially in the size, shape, color, gender of fulfilling roles in texts. And, and, and as an industry, we rely on these white supremacist theories and structures that we need to move past and we need to do the work. And the work is hard and the work is uncomfortable, but it needs to be done. This is, I feel like John, for me, you're like five miles down the road into specifics, right? Without actually having everyone in the organization understand what white supremacist culture maybe even is, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, if we educate ourselves or as a group, as an organization, educate ourselves into what white supremacist culture is, um, what racism in this country is, how institutionalized it is, and, and leave the detail of the theater, we can extrapolate what the problem is with theater without, without someone necessarily telling us. Of course, there are people who can point out specific things and organizations that have formed to help um, theater or entertainment organizations move forward. But sometimes I feel like what comes out of forums that I see is, is a little bit skimming the surface and we do need to skim the surface, but we need to go way deeper than, than the surface. And so just that rudimentary understanding that it that crosses all industries, right? I think that's the starting point. And I also just think the organization has to decide this is important, right? And, and that's not my choice in my organization, whether this is important or not. And that's not your choice in your organization. Um, it's not even the leader's choice in the organization. It's the organization's choice as a whole and and eventually sort of you know you gotta talk the talk and walk the walk right yeah hearing john what you were saying earlier about like uh difficulty in finding resources and whatnot um reminds me of another valid point to make to our listeners that are are genuinely trying to have a, a critical conversation and just don't know how to take that first step or, or a couple steps within. Um, we already talked about the importance of being an active listener. Yes. 
Um, and when you talk about the difficulty of, of finding resources, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, I, I, as a minority, I think like, oh, why is it so difficult? Like I'm surrounded by them, right? But you, you highlight another obstacle on the white side, which is the white echo chamber, right? So here, here's the, the white male looking for answers. So they turned to their left and asked the other white male and they turn to their right, like, oh, I'm going to do an extra good job and I'm going to ask two people this time. And they turn to the right and they ask the other white male, right? So now you've got three white males looking for the same answer and the sequence just kind of continues. So you create this white echo chamber and yes, your, your source, your resources within that chamber are limited because you're, you're just working off of a white base. If you if you reach out, if part of that education process is reaching out to the BIPOC community and, and, and hearing and becoming an active listener there and asking them the same question, like, I'm looking for this resource, help me find it, where can I find it? And just listen to what they have to say. Uh, that, that helps you on multiple levels. You, you get the physical resource that you're looking for but at the same time, you've you've garnered a new relationship there that's going to be fundamental to you as a person, to an organization, uh, and whatnot. And and you just kind of continue that path there. So it's it's reaching out to others and breaking that white echo chamber cycle. Uh, it's equally it's very important there. That's a great perspective. And, 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 you know, and I would go one step further and saying, you know, I think it's important to bring in BIPOC collaborators, right? And, and the difficulty from my perspective is finding the line between being, not finding the line, but, but being really clear that this isn't checking a box and moving towards tokenism, but it's legitimately trying to do better and engage BIPOC artists into the organization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 it's it's really no different than, um, you know, pr pronouns. You know, asking someone, "Hey, what are your pronouns? Uh, how do you identify?" Or uh, some even something that we deal with on a more regular basis in our industry. Uh, it, from a front of house perspective, somebody comes up w with a disability of some kind, is, is in a wheelchair, whatnot, just uh, asking what, what the needs are. Uh, uh, allow, I'm here to help you uh, give me a better understanding of what your needs are, right? Uh, what, what pronouns are you identify? It's just, just asking that question. And it's, it's no difference with this topic of racism too. Like, help me. Help me, how, how am I, get, educate me on how am I getting it wrong? Educate me on how I can get it better, right? There's, again, we, dropping this stigma of, of vulnerability is bad or not knowing is bad or uh, it, it's going to make you lesser than uh, is, that's the bigger obstacle uh, for, for the white male that I see is, um, getting over that. 
and the way that they get over that sometimes is pretty treacherous, pretty horrible. Like, I guess another advice that I would give, a common thing that is said is that I would say to to those white males, to the white community is don't relate. Don't do do not play that comparison game. When you have somebody from the BIPOC community actually opening themselves up to you and trying to provide a lesson, no matter how subtle that lesson you think may be, do not begin to relate and say something to the effect of like, oh, I know what you mean. Cause like when I was little or when I was in this other company, this thing happened to me. Cause in no way, shape or form is that equal to whatever happened to that BIPOC member. Uh, so just listen. It goes back to what Jen was saying, just be that active listener. Um, so I, I think if we, if, if we talk about some takeaways here for our listeners um, that are trying to have good, genuine, active conversations here and are working towards gaining the trust of their, of their peers, of their colleagues, of their friends, of their organization, uh, making sure that they create a good culture within that organization, making everybody feel welcome that is both currently working there and any new hires. Um, I think key takeaways here uh, for everyone is active listener, uh, reach out to those not in your own community to avoid that white echo chamber and, and don't relate. Don't relate your problems unto others. Uh, as, as a white person, don't relate your problems unto others because uh, it's not going to be the same. Your privilege will always be, your privilege in a wronged situation is always going to be far better than a BIPOC member's wrong situation. Uh, hopefully those are, those are three takeaways to replace your politics, religion, and money fears and and you can use in, in other conversations and hopefully uh, uh, other things get stirred in, in positive fashions for our audiences, organizations. Jen, Herman, thank you. Um, I, I, I've learned a lot. I've been uncomfortable uh, today and, and that's okay. Uh, and, and and there's great takeaways here. Um, and I hope that our listeners engage with us more and tell us what they think about, about these conversations, other conversations, what, whatever else. Um, and, and, you know, the, the discomfort factor is real. And, and the more you feel it, the more I think you're learning. So open yourself up to these conversations, be an active listener, be a partner, be an advocate, and uh, stay tuned for this episode's last call. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our last call session, a very special one here. 
because this is, if you guys remember, it got flipped on me before, and now we're going to flip it on another Ken uh, co-host here, Jen Dasher. Jen, why don't you start off by introducing yourself? Sure. I'm Jen Dasher. I am the costume design faculty member at the University of Florida, which means that I am recording tonight from Gainesville, Florida, which sits on the lands of the Temecula people and the Seminole tribe and is very, very hot and humid currently. Um, I am a white cisgendered female and my pronouns are she, her, hers. All right. Thank you, Jen, for that reminder of who we get to hear every, uh, every podcast here. Um, so uh, I got to experience my own questions when uh, John did it to me and I figured, uh, let me mix it up a bit. Let me mix it up. Let's, let's get to learn the, the person receiving the questions. I get to learn a little bit more. So uh, you're gonna be our, our guinea pig, if you will, or, or a test subject for this new rapid fire format. Uh, so the rules of the game are, I'm gonna ask you 10 questions and there's no thinking allowed. Okay, just that's like the most impossible for me, just so everyone knows I overthink everything. So let's do this. Yeah. So give me the first answer that comes to your head. Okay. Are you ready? It's a good little warm up for us. Perfect. Okay. So we're going to start off with what's your favorite season? Fall. Favorite show? TV show? Theater show? Theater show. So I actually prefer dance. Oh, good answer. Good answer. Okay. As a costumer here, what's your favorite stitch? Uh, the cross stitch. Mm. It's very zen, the cross stitch. <laughs> my, my costume people know. Okay. What was the first show you ever saw? First theater show you ever saw? I don't know if it was the first, but Cats is the most memorable of my childhood. Gotcha. Okay. If you did not pick the the path that you did of costume design, what would you pick? I would be a lawyer. Favorite number? 10. Favorite food? Mexican. Favorite Particularly sport? beans. Oh, um, <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> That's good, okay. Favorite sport? Baseball. I, I know a little bit of your career, so best celebrity that you've worked with? Mm. Is this question allowed? Um, it's a complex question, Herman. Sensing a lot of thinking on this <laughs> one here. So we're gonna skip the next one. Uh, back I don't wanna offend anybody by choosing somebody else. This is a problem. I'm like, which angle are we going for? What's the no, right that's answer? true, that's true. Our celebrity written audience is gonna be. <laughs> They're waiting for your answer. Uh, so uh, we'll keep them waiting. And instead, why don't you tell us uh, the best Broadway show you've seen? War Horse. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. For your final and 10th question here, the game-winning buzzer question is, when it comes to fashion, what is your favorite time period? 80s 80s very colorful i'm into like the big hair i i it's the 80s i'm sorry that's great that's great uh 
I don't know. You're the first one, but I got to say, I love this rapid fire format. Uh, we're going to try it some more. <laughs> um, okay, so that's our warm up for the typical last call portion of uh, where we introduce the next prompt. So, what do you got for us, Jen? All right. So, we were just giggling and laughing, but we got to get get serious. So to, to take us back, I want to take us mentally to summer 2020. Just remind us that part of the country is in COVID lockdowns. People are dying, particularly in New York City. George Floyd is murdered on the street. We have Black Lives Matter protests. And in the theater world, the We See You White American Theater document comes out. And what happens after that document comes out is that we start to see in educational institutions, students and alumni write similar lists of demands um, advocating for racial justice in educational theater programs specifically. So what I want to introduce is actually a series that we're going to produce, a call to action series, where we bring in guests and uh, have them tell their stories. These very people who used their voice to advocate in their institutions for racial justice. I want to bring them into our pod bar and have them tell their stories. Wow, Jen, wow. Uh, that's great. Uh, certainly very, very important. Some very heavy stuff I'm sure that we're about to hear, uh, but that certainly needs to be heard. Um, so thank you for bringing that forth. Um, and, and hopefully we get to demonstrate to our listeners as well as how anybody and everybody uh, is welcome to use this as their platform. Um, so thank you for that very important prompt there, Jen. Uh, certainly look forward to participating in it on our next few episodes. Uh, so everyone out there, please stay tuned to 801. Thank you and good night.